0: Greetings students, as always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The First Great Awakening and the Enlightenment. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, The Age of Reason. The 1700s was influenced by an intellectual movement called the Enlightenment. The Scientific Revolution and the Enlightenment did not emerge out of nowhere, This was a long process with lots of influences that happened over time. Some of the influences on the ideas of the Enlightenment was the transmission of literature and culture from the Islamic world, which took place during the Crusades and afterwards, as well as the Renaissance and the rebirth of Western knowledge, and the fascination with the occult and the supernatural. The Enlightenment began in Europe in the 1500s and reached its height in the 1700s. Previously, most people believed that religion provided all the answers to life's important questions. So why did this happen? It was either God's will, or the devil did it. During the Enlightenment, some began using reason and scientific method to find answers instead of simply accepting traditional religious beliefs. These thinkers believed that everything in the world, nature, life, and society could be explained in a rational and scientific way. Reason can explain everything, not just gravity or medicine, but what government should resemble and what constituted ethical behavior. In order to investigate these questions, scientists and philosophers began using scientific method, which is where you pose a question, you do background research, you form a hypothesis, you do tests, you observe the results, you analyze them, and then you communicate your findings. This is how you are supposed to go about studying anything in life not just watching a YouTube video and then posting some crackpot theory on social media. Well, if humans can use reason, then men can create the best laws for everyone, not just for the elite. So this idea that using reason to create laws led to a significant amount of social criticism. There are some great thinkers we should all know. The first is Sir Francis Bacon, the father of empiricism who developed scientific method. Another great thinker is Nicholas Copernicus, who argued that the sun, rather than the earth, was the center of the universe, giving rise to heliocentrism. While this was an important discovery, Copernicus was not much of a departure from Aristotle, and he received mild opposition from both Protestant and Catholics for his beliefs during his lifetime, but it was only six decades after his death that his work became controversial. Another thinker is Galileo Galilei, the father of modern physics in observational astronomy, who observed the phases of Venus, the rings of Saturn, and four of Jupiter's largest moons. He used a telescope to see all of this, and he once said, quote, "...philosophy is written in this grand book, the universe. It is written in the language of mathematics and its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures." Quote. Meaning, he understood that the laws of the universe were based in mathematics. Later, he was arrested under the Roman Inquisition for pursuing truth, and he was confined to house arrest for the rest of his life from 1633 to 1642. After his sentence was announced, he left the court, looked up at the sky, and stated, quote, And yet it moves. End quote. Another great scientist is Sir Isaac Newton, who used mathematics to discover classical mechanics like gravity and the laws of motion. Lastly, you have René Descartes, who created great works like Meditations on Philosophy that changed Western philosophy forever. He introduced Methodic Doubt and shifted the debate from what is true to of what can I be certain, taking the guarantor of truth from God to humanity. Thus, he once wrote, quote, I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. End quote. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Philosophers. The first Enlightenment thinker that we will talk about is Thomas Hobbes, who lived from 1588 to 1679. Hobbes looked at social and political order. He argued that the state of nature before civilization was cruel and chaotic. In order to escape the state of nature, humans must give authority over to an absolute ruler to keep stability and maintain discipline. The Enlightenment also included political thinkers like John Locke, considered the father of liberalism, but not the liberalism that you hear about today. Classical liberalism advocates civil liberties under the rule of law with an emphasis on economic freedom. Locke was inspired by the Glorious Revolution and the 1689 English Bill of Rights. This created a separation of powers between various branches of government it limited the power of the king and queen, and it bolstered free speech. One year later, in 1690, John Locke published his two treaties on government, in part to defend the Glorious Revolution. He challenged the idea of divine right monarchs, and he set forward his social contract theory of natural rights, that people are born with natural rights to life, liberty, and property. Next, he stated that humans were born as tabula rasa, meaning a blank slate, It means that every human was born without any innate or essential set of beliefs, concepts, or behaviors. Instead, as they lived their lives, perceiving everything around them, interacting with the people in the environment, they would form ideas and beliefs in their mind. He also put forward the concept of the consent of the governed, that the authority comes from the people, and that people establish governments to protect natural rights. And when governments fail to protect those rights, people can change their government. Another important thinker for American jurisprudence is Montesquieu in his book, The Spirit of Laws. He put forward the separation of powers, a theory that said that the executive, legislative, and judicial functions of government should be assigned to different bodies within that government so one branch does not infringe upon the liberty of others. England was also influenced by country thought, which had an opposition to standing armies, large bureaucracies, taxes, corruption, and it wanted to put power in the landed gentry, not in officials or the prime minister. It also advocated annual elections, and it worried about the growth of urban merchants, bankers, and their consolidation of power. The last thinker I want you to know is Cesar Beccaria, the father of criminal justice, and the condemner of torture and the death penalty. His works, like On Crimes and Punishment, were very influential on the Founders. He once said, Every punishment which does not arise from absolute necessity, says the great Montesquieu, is tyrannical. A proposition may be made more general thus. Every act of authority of one man over another, for which there is not an absolute necessity... Is tyrannical, end quote. John Adams, when he defended British soldiers at the Boston Massacre trial, quoted Beccaria by stating, quote, if by supporting the rights of mankind and of invincible truth, I shall contribute to save from the agonies of death one unfortunate victim of tyranny or ignorance equally fatal, his blessing and tears of transport will be sufficient consolation to me for the contempt of all mankind, end quote all of these thinkers ideas influenced americans thomas jefferson once wrote quote, "bacon locke and newton i consider them as the three greatest men that ever lived without any exception and as having laid the foundations of those superstructures which have been raised in the physical and moral sciences" end quote. another french enlightenment figure was voltaire he was a rabble-rouser he liked to piss people off especially the aristocracy and religious figures. It was said of him that his name inspired dread from tyrants. Voltaire was heavily critical of organized religion, especially since Louis XIV had rolled back religious toleration. So Voltaire pushed a new idea called deism. Deism argued for the theory of God as a clockmaker, that once he created the universe, he made it work as soundly as a clock and took a step back setting in motion and allowing events to develop according to natural laws. Another thinker you should know is Adam Smith, an Englishman who wanted to use reason to explain economics. For Smith, his use of reason pushed him to the economic idea of laissez-faire, meaning hands-off or hands-free. Smith said that economics should not be interfered with by the state, and that there should be natural forces of economics that are left to their own fruition. He felt that individuals should be free to pursue their own economic self-interest's profit motive in a commercial system comprised of individuals with private property operating in a free market ruled by the invisible hand, the natural law of supply and demand. If all individuals pursued their own self-interest, the economy would regulate itself in the aggregate result would be economic growth. Smith said that government should only protect society from an invasion, so maintain an army and defend its citizens, and also maintain law enforcement and keep up the infrastructure that private individuals would not be able to build for themselves, like roads and canals. Now, laissez-faire is different from mercantilism. Mercantilism rests on the principle that the state, often under an absolute monarch, would direct trade making sure that the state would always have a favorable trading surplus. Smith would be against this, arguing that this was interference in the market. But where they agree is the idea that the state should provide infrastructure for the economy. So, Smith is making specific critiques of a specific economic model. He would be shocked to the extent that his ideas had been co-opted and used for modern political arguments that he never could have fathomed. The last male Enlightenment figure we will discuss is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He was concerned with the characteristics of human interactions in its original and natural state, a.k.a. before organized society. And he wants to see how organized society changed human interactions. See, Rousseau is responding to Locke and Hobbes. All of these thinkers lived at more or less the same time, and you can safely assume they read each other. Remember, the printing press is in full force, It's been around for centuries, and the writings these intellectuals are creating are being printed and translated and distributed across Europe and beyond. And some of these people even worked directly with one another. So Rousseau's first statement is simply, human society kind of sucks. Rousseau believed that in the state of natural life, human beings were independent. Everyone's free and happy, and it's only when humans create societies that things get messed up society becomes exploitive, especially for Rousseau as he sees the massive gap between the rich and the poor. His solution was the social contract. He envisioned a democratic, republican society where freedom meant active participation in politics and legislation. This revolved around the consensus by the people, aka the general will, instead of what a ruler wanted to impose. Rousseau was really the beginning of the end of the Enlightenment, He's probably the first of a new trend called Romanticism, which emphasized that yearning for the idyllic state of nature, the elevation of feeling over reason, and the possibility of recapturing that original perfect innocence. Of course, that is a story for another class. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Women in the Enlightenment. Though underappreciated, women played a role in Enlightenment thought as well. Perhaps the most famous of these was Mary Wallenstonecraft. She was an Englishwoman who wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Woman in 1792. Wallenstonecraft argued that if women were going to be held accountable for their sins and crimes, as they were in France and England at the time, then they must also have souls and the mental capacity to distinguish between right and wrong. She was arguing that women actually had the capability to reason and if so, they should be allowed to develop it and exercise it just as men did. The idea that women could think just as men did seems completely and utterly valid now, but in the 18th century, no, and this was reflected by the ways in which women were treated in European society. They did not receive the same educational opportunities as men. They were essentialized as wives and mothers. Wallenstonecraft advocated equal education for women justifying it by saying that educated women would make better mothers, wives, and responsible citizens. And she conceptualized the roles of women in a society where most women would marry. In fact, she spent a lot of her time in her book discussing the ideal marriage, which would be based on rational love, instead of arranged marriages. This new egalitarian marriage between two rational consenting adults would allow women more rights, such as the right to possess and distribute property, maintain custody of her children, and to divorce. And believe it or not, but British law at this time did not allow any of these things. Women were treated as inferior dependents. Wallenstonecraft is notable for shifting the Enlightenment thought towards women in the family. She advocated the image of the egalitarian family as the prototype of democracy. In this way, she is one of the founders of modern European feminism. However, despite the work of Wallenstonecraft, it must be remembered that from the Enlightenment, women did not experience an increase in their rights, nor were the ideas that men were rational and logical be applied to women. The Enlightenment developed in tandem with the creation of fields of professional academia, like biology, sociology, anthropology, and political science. As these fields developed they validated the claim that these rights only applied to white men. So as the ideas of scientific sexism and scientific racism emerged during the Enlightenment, they placed the intellectual and moral superiority of white men at the expense of women and non-whites. Scientists would look to nature, which was immutable or unchangeable, they thought, to prove that women were inferior. For example, they would study the body, particularly the brain and the pelvis, as natural foundations to justify social inequalities. They would use quote-unquote science to say that women had compressed skulls, say they were incapable of critical thinking or producing an original thought. For the pelvis and uterus, they believed this was the universal measure of womanliness. It was a natural sign that women were inherently meant to produce children, be nurturing, and take care of the family. As one person wrote, quote, The Almighty... In creating the female sex had taken the uterus and built up a woman around it. End quote. Doctors believed that all female ailments could be linked to the reproductive system. This apparently, to these doctors, made women more delicate and more prone to emotional instability, and, most ludicrous of all, that menstruation brought on temporary insanity. They also believed that pregnant women should not strain their brains, or else the unborn child would be harmed. And we should make one more note. Unfortunately, there are some very ignorant people out there who still believe many of these things. The point is that these ideas will lead to the age of revolutions as the people begin incorporating and using these ideas. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Benjamin Franklin. The single most famous American Enlightenment figure was Benjamin Franklin, and he was the most famous person in the colonies before George Washington during the Revolution. Ben worked for his brother James Franklin, the Boston printer of the New England Corrient. He wanted to get stories into the paper, but his older brother was jealous, so he first wrote the silence do-good letters under that pseudonym in 1722. In these letters, he poked fun at the manners moors, and institutions of colonial Boston. Due to rigid censorship, only a charming woman could make a socially satire palatable. And he fooled all of Boston, and when he finally revealed it was him, Richard was so mad, as were many in Boston, that Franklin picked up and left for Philadelphia. Once there, he printed his own newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. He was a great businessman, and he made money on advertisements and as a postal master. In this age, printers disseminate information, and so for a long time he was part of the British bureaucracy. He invented the associate press, where you would buy articles from local or major papers and then resell them to other papers. So as you can see, he was a shrewd businessman. Once in Philadelphia, he began publishing Poor Richard's Almanac, which has some great quotes I want you to know. An empty bag cannot stand upright. Light purse, heavy heart. Fools multiply folly. Be slow in choosing a friend. Slower still in changing. And my personal favorite, fish and guests stink after three days. Franklin was also a philosopher, a scientist, and an inventor. He invented bifocals, the Franklin stove, and swim fins. He helped discover electricity and lightning, and he was the single most famous American in his era, known across the world for his scientific discoveries and experiments. He was also one of the founders of the University of Pennsylvania, which was not a theological school, but a liberal arts school. Franklin believed in Christian morality. He knew it was important, but he did not subscribe to the Bible's theology and its superstitions. So Franklin was more of a deist. Speaking of religion, let us turn to the First Great Awakening, and please turn to the next slide entitled, Establishment Churches. As Enlightenment ideas were spreading, religion in England's North American colonies were also changing. Historians have wrestled with the state of American faith from 1700 to 1800, and some have attempted to understand declension, or a reduction in membership in churches. Many point to the fact that church attendance remained high, but many men were not full members, because public confession and expression of emotion was not something many men wanted to do. In addition, female full membership never declined, because they were at ease discussing spiritual feelings as part of their gender norms. Others blame Christian rationalism that came out of the Enlightenment for reducing church membership. But perhaps it was the stifling nature of the churches themselves which spurred declension. In the 17th century, established or state-supported churches, like the Congregationalists in New England and the Anglicans in the South, dominated the colonies. In the middle colonies, diversity and tolerance allowed for a wide variety of different denominations, each supported by their own unique ethnic group. However, Anglican and Puritan zealots denounced this as the, quote, whirlpool of apostasy, end quote, in the Middle Colonies. Despite this supposed apostasy, the Middle Colonies boasted one congregation for every 470 colonists. By comparison, it was one for every 600 in New England and one for every 1,500 in Virginia by 1750. In New England, rigid conformity dominated, and access to churches was easy, since most inhabitants lived six miles from the meeting house. But in other colonies, infrastructure and the lack of ministers left established churches weak. Southern roads were atrocious, and many people lived 100 miles from a church, and as you can see, it was much harder to travel there. There was also a lack of clergy. In 1729, North Carolina had 12 Anglican parishes and no resident ministers. In 1724, in Virginia, they had only 28 pastors for the 120,000 inhabitants. Also unlike New England, there were fewer colleges in the South, until William and Mary was founded in 1693 in Virginia. America was home to more than just Protestant and Catholic denominations, they were also home to Jews. There were Jewish synagogues in Newport, New York City, and Charlestown. Again, illustrating the long history of multiculturalism and numerous religions living in America. In the 18th century, new churches arose, like the Methodists, the Baptists, and the Presbyterians. And they quickly outgrew the old establishment churches. Why is this important? Well, it subverts old sources of elite authority. If you are in a high position in the church leadership, you're also probably a leading member of town. One of the wealthy, and so you're used to people deferring to you. In fact, the wealthy could directly dominate the church. As in Virginia, when Minister K railed against the sin of pride in a sermon, and as a result, a leading planter, Colonel Carter, took it personally and ousted the minister and shutted the doors of the church. That's real power. Well, when you begin taking away some of that authority, you're challenging power by having your voice heard. And this is critical because of the democratization of religion. You're taking a role in determining your denomination, your minister, your church leadership, your bylaws, and etc. We can call this the beginnings of self-government. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Religious Reform. In the 1700s, evangelism became very popular. The definition of evangelism is the spreading of the Christian gospel by public preaching or personal witness. Also, the zealous advocating of a cause. What this means is that for Christianity, we see a more heartfelt, personal, inward, emotional religion as opposed to a formal, unemotional, established religion. In congregational services, you file in, sit down, you read the opening message and blessing, you have the topic of the sermon and then it's psalm, hymn, sermon message, psalm, hymn, closing prayer, everyone's home. Baptist services are more emotional, with chants, songs, testifying, coming forward to be saved, falling out with the Holy Spirit. These are very heartfelt and public professions of faith for salvation and holy grace. We see the growth of evangelism, and it sparks various religious revivals, and this whole period is called the Great Awakening, from 1735 to 1755. A revival is meant to inspire active church members to gain new converts. Revivals are led by itinerant preachers who delivered emotional sermons and stressed personal conversions for salvation or else risk eternal damnation. This evangelism takes many forms in many different places. It is hard to say if... This is all just one large movement, or if there are small revivals all over. But the point is that in this era, we see the rise of new church denominations, styles of preaching, and the messages that are preached. Please advance to the next slide entitled Famous Preachers. The most famous itinerant preacher was Anglican George Whitfield. Despite being cross eyed, he had a commanding presence. He preached primarily in England but he made seven trips to the colonies. In the fall of 1740, he made a tour of New England, in which he preached every day for over a month. Some of his crowds had as many as 8,000 listeners, which was the entire population of Boston at the time. And he stressed the new birth, where you confessed your sins and devoted your life to Christ, for which you would receive salvation. So this is an uplifting message. By contrast, in 1741, the Congregationalist minister, Jonathan Edwards, delivered his famous sermon in Enfield, Massachusetts, entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And here is just a passage from it. "...God holds you over a pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire. He abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else." But to be cast into the fire, end quote. So, not a very uplifting message. The point is that Whitfield is a showman, and Edwards is the theologian, and both represent the new messages and new styles of preaching that is happening in America. Please advance to the next slide entitled "Consequences." What were the consequences of the Great Awakening? Well, first, the fragmentation of the establishment churches and the formation and growth of new churches. Also, more people began to favor disestablishment churches, and this empowered the common people, who were encouraged to exercise their own religious judgments. It is also the first popular movement before the revolution that occurred in all 13 colonies. And many historians wonder, had the awakening ever happened, would the revolution have occurred when it did? I would say no. Because if you're willing to challenge your ideas about God and faith, why not challenge an unfair political system? Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.